0: Hello and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. In each episode, we examine perspectives on industry and management to better understand how the world is changing and how those changes create business risks and opportunities to be managed. My name is Jason Winsunis. I'm senior editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'll be your host this week for a topic on uncertainty in the business world. Recently, we released a new report aptly titled The Art of Managing Business Uncertainty, a Future of Work Study for Greater China. If you're interested in the full report after this podcast, please visit our website. We've created one especially for the report, bit.ly slash of You can also find it on perspectives.eiu.com. In this study, we took a look at business in greater China, which includes the SARs of Macau and Hong Kong, which is where I'm sitting now, as well as Taiwan. When we were first considering this research topic, it was conceived as something that we could use to find out what's going on inside different parts of China and Taiwan to look into trends such as automation, trade tensions, and all the things that were going on before COVID-19 pushed everything else to the sidelines. It might be hard to remember now, but there was a lot going on six months ago in business. A lot of change was on the horizon, still is. That's what we set out to study. But just as we were developing our survey, asking on themes of tech and other major business trends, That's when COVID 19 surfaced. And of course, this reflects in the survey results. Nearly seven in 10 respondents, senior business executives in the region, said that the degree of business uncertainty that they're experiencing today is greater than at any other time in their careers. Now, half of these respondents are from the C suite. So they've seen a lot of change over the past 25 years from the advent of the smartphone, which has accelerated digital disruption, particularly in China to the global financial crisis, and even the dawn of private industry in China at all. Yet these same executives are pretty unified in the view that right now holds more uncertainty for them as they look to the future than any other time in their careers. What's causing that commercial anxiety is the focus of our report. Now, today, everyone knows how China has hit impressive metrics. It's built the world's most extensive high-speed rail network. It's home to some of the most profitable and sophisticated e-commerce ventures, and even some of the world's biggest banks. But it wasn't always like that. Far from it. Even 10 years ago, there was still speculation as to whether or not China could, in fact, grow to become the world's second-largest economy. Now, most conversations are about when will it become the world's largest. Not if. And in the midst of a pandemic, China has one of the few economies that's likely going to show any growth at all for the year 2020, at least according to Economist Intelligence Unit forecasts. And just to pat ourselves on the back for a moment, the EIU does win awards for our forecast accuracy. So maybe this is the best time for me to introduce our guest for today. He's one of the analysts that drives that accuracy. Nick Morrow, the EIU's lead analyst for global trade and China and Macau, as well as supporting analyst for Taiwan. He's our go-to for cross-straits affairs and Belt and Road Initiative Insight. But most importantly for today's conversation, he's also a member of our Access China team, keeping tabs on China's 31 provinces and nearly 300 prefectures. Welcome, Nick, and thank you for making some time for us with all those titles there. I know you're quite busy. My pleasure. Happy to help out. Now then, rather than rehashing the the full uncertainty report, I'm hoping what you can do is help us to understand some of the macro picture behind what business leaders were telling us in the report, both in the survey dimension and in the one-on-one interviews we did. Maybe you can illuminate What are the pressures that are driving change and therefore uncertainty in China's economy, as well as why China is likely to still post some GDP growth this year, or if that's even still our forecast? Geographically, when we did this survey, we broke down the region into Tier 1 and Tier 2 cities on the mainland and the greater Bay Area encompassing Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Macau. And then we also added Taiwan since these economies are so closely intertwined. So maybe there's some differences in those geographical areas that you can also highlight as we go along. And as I alluded to earlier, China's executives see more uncertainty in terms of their strategic planning today than at any other time in their career. So from your view, what is the macro backdrop for that? What are those concerns playing out against?
1: Well, I think that word that you kept mentioning, uncertainty. That's really the element that's driving a lot of this, because I mean we are in the middle of a global pandemic um, and we're in a pandemic that we still don't fully understand a lot of the reopening in Western economies that we're seeing right now, for example. I mean, there's a lot of controversy in terms of how appropriate that is um, and what that might mean for things like a second wave. But let's start from maybe a relatively broad perspective, and then we'll nail it down to China and the region. For the macroeconomic global picture, the EIU's views are pretty pessimistic. Uh, We expect the global economy to contract by about 4.8% this year. That's worse than the global financial crisis, as well as global trade volumes to fall by around 23% as well, owing to the paralysis in economic activity. Now, China is one of the few economies where we're actually relatively optimistic. We do expect it to post positive growth this year. Our specific number is an expansion of 1.4%. But that's still very dire by historical standards. And really, if you look at the China picture, that's because the recovery has come a bit more quickly than many anticipated, particularly when we compare China to what's happening in other markets. So for example, the economic shock in the second quarter looks to be relatively contained. Exports have done very well, particularly as the world has maintained its demand for shipments of Chinese personal protective equipment, such as masks, as well as other medical goods. And Chinese companies have also been able to position themselves quite advantageously in a world where supply shocks have been pretty dire. So in the trade landscape, where their European or North American rivals have had to cease production, Chinese companies have been able to kind of step up and fill the void. And so generally, the macroeconomic picture for China, while very concerning, is still pretty good, all things considered. Domestic activity has seen somewhat of a V-shaped bounce back, particularly in auto sales. But this is coming at the expense of some structural concerns, starting to see some issues around overcapacity, for example. But generally speaking, the picture for 2020 in China looks not too bad, all things considered. Now, there are risks on the horizon. We've just seen a new COVID-19 cluster outbreak in Beijing in the past month, That could derail any continuation in that economic recovery. Diplomatic relations with the U.S. have really deteriorated since the beginning of the pandemic. And we've seen a reignition of trade tensions since late spring as the bilateral relationship has soured. And as a result, the story for the second half of 2020 is still going to look very uncertain. And that uncertainty is going to have consequences for business. Talking about the region as well, um, it is still a pretty dire outlook for Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan too. In Taiwan, we're expecting GDP to fall by around 2% on annual average this year. A lot of that is coming from the trade shock tied to COVID-19. Hong Kong, we're expecting to be firmly in contraction, both as a result of the pandemic, but also the protests that have rocked the city since this time last year. And then in Macau, we're expecting a whopping GDP contraction of around 70%, that's 7-0 owing to the absolute collapse in gambling and tourism revenues on balance, even if mainland China looks like it'll be doing relatively well compared to the rest of the region, this is not a positive year for Asia or the global economy really in any sense of the word. For
0: Macau in particular, we didn't get a whole lot of responses in our survey from that part of the country. Is there much of any other industry there besides gambling today?
1: It's mostly gambling the local government has tried its best to diversify the economy they've recognized that over-reliance on gambling is somewhat of a systemic weakness for macau back in 2014 there was a strong chinese anti-corruption campaign that essentially hit money laundering flows which really in turn brought down the macanese economy because a lot of the money that was heading to the casinos was essentially illegal and so Back then, we started to see policymakers really talk about diversifying the Macau's economy into other forms of tourism, whether that's shopping or entertainment parks or particularly the hosting of various conferences or events, things like that. But that really hasn't taken off. We started to see a bit of a, a gambling recovery in the past two years, which I think eroded a lot of the momentum towards more policy diversification. That's kind of undermined a lot of Macau's economic prospects for 2020, just because the inability to really wean themselves off of the casino sector has really kept them exposed to falling tourism and gambling flows, most of which are coming from China. And so we are expecting some pretty strong pain in the Macanese economy this year.
0: So that would probably account for some of the pessimism that we got in our survey when we secluded the Greater Bay Area. That's certainly going to be a factor. But of course, you know, in, in the overall survey, we did ask about what were the major drivers For executives, with their sentiment, why are they feeling so uncertain? So we gave them a list, and out of the trends, we asked, you know, which presents the most uncertainty for your organization's forward planning over the next 12 months? And the survey was in the field through March and April this year, and that's right around when COVID-19 was really hitting its peak for, for numbers in China. So as you might expect, the top answer people gave in the survey was, natural disasters, including pandemics, was their biggest source. But the next highest response, and it's a very close second, actually, it's not even a full percentage point apart, was changes in customer behavior. And when I think about that, for example, how much the smartphone plays a role in China's consumption patterns, I can see that it would be a difficult dimension for businesses to grasp. You know, what are consumers going to do next right they're changing rapidly and the digital feedback also comes quick but there's more to that right it's not just these new devices tastes are changing and importantly so is buying power so as far as customers and consumers can you give us some of that macro background there like what's changing in that dimension within china
1: well when we talk about the chinese consumer one of the most important topics i think that we need to discuss is demography and the structure of China's population, because this is such an inherently important part of the consumer landscape. And it's something that the EIU has actually looked quite closely at. So if we talk about our demographic assumptions for China, we are expecting the population to peak at around 1.4 billion, before 6 billion or so in 2026. And this is owing to a decline in the birth rate, as well as essentially a failure to jumpstart births from the two-child policy, which China introduced a couple of years ago. That has consequences for the structure of how the population is going to change over the next decade. The old age dependency ratio, for example, so that's the ratio of people who are 65 years old and older compared to the working age population, that's going to rise to around 30% by 2030. It'll reach a level that's roughly equivalent to the OECD countries today. And the working age population will have fallen to 70 million by 2030. As part of that, we are expecting something called reverse migration. So over much of the past 30 years, a lot of China's more wealthier provinces, think Jiangsu, Zhejiang, Shanghai, Beijing, they really benefit from migration flows from relatively poor provinces, whether that's Anhui province, Sichuan, Hebei, Hubei, things like that. We expect the situation to shift a little bit. As economic prospects in those smaller provinces and and cities begin to develop, we are expecting some of these population flows to return to their their hometowns. We are expecting places like Sichuan and Hubei, for example, to see net migration inflows in the period to 2030. And as I said, this is really going to be driven by economic growth, particularly in tier two and tier three and below cities uh, in the longer term. Now, how does this relate to consumer behavior? Well, this is going to create some of a shift in dynamics of supply and demand. So for example, fewer workers are going to drive a demand for companies in terms of their application of automation and artificial intelligence, for example. And that, in turn, could lead to the development of new consumer-facing products, more sophistication around things like the Internet of Things, ways to capitalize on 5G technology. And what you mentioned, Jason, as well, in terms of what I think is really the critical aspect of this in China, the development of the mobile phone economy, not in the sense of you know, how many phones are being sold in China, but in terms of all the things that you can do with your mobile phone in China, a lot of this was going to revolve around mobile finance. That's going to be, I think, an incredibly important part of the consumer landscape moving forward and understanding those trends, not just around digitization in general, but also the kind of digitization, the fact that it's occurring via mobile phones and not via, say, desktops or laptops. That's also going to be really important understanding these types of trends. I think as part of all of this as well, we're seeing a really big attempt to tap into hard to reach markets in China, particularly in rural areas. And that's going to be important for the e-commerce landscape. There are a number of different factors here. Part of that reverse migration I talked about is inevitably going to involve population flows into rural areas. And so we're going to see a bit more of not just a consumer base, but also a production base in areas of China that maybe were underserviced over the past decade or so. Another angle to look at is also the COVID-19 relief measures. We're seeing a very big focus on things like developing infrastructure, whether that's traditional infrastructure like roads and rail to new infrastructure such as 5G base stations. That does have a big focus on the rural economy as well, and that could offer opportunities into, again, tapping into these underserved markets. I think there are other uh, sectoral trends to be aware of as well. So population aging is going to drive demand for health care and elder care. It could also create opportunities for things in, say, insurance. But on a more macro level, we're also expecting an increase in disposable income levels as well as consumption to drive demand a bit more generally. Chinese policymakers have for a long time really focused on this idea of allowing the economy to be driven by consumption, and not relying too much still on, you know, things like investment or exports. And so this is already a very strong policy area, and we do expect it to result in some notable success over the next decade, even if a lot of this consumption activity we do forecast to be quite concentrated still in urban areas.
0: You're giving me some ideas for some additional research. The the idea of mobile finance, I think, is something that's really interesting to look at. And definitely this reverse migration issue is Certainly something that's quite fascinating, and particularly in China. I've been reading a lot about these new TikTok-type stars who are, you know, rural farmers. Right, yeah. Boosting their sales, and it's uh, driving all kinds of interesting things within the economy. Yeah. But getting back to this survey, some of the other causes for uncertainty, if, if we look down, like, at the bottom of the list, you know, tying for last place, actually, were issues of climate change and migrating supply chains. And so, you know, we don't get a lot more information from the survey takers other than these are the things that worry them or don't worry them. But I would wonder if you could speculate a little bit about businesses in China, if they're not too worried about those things, is it actually that they have a good handle on it and when they know what's going on there so that it's not a big risk factor, or is it just not important to them? You know, I've heard from people that we've interviewed for this report and others that for example, it's natural that supply chains would be leaving China as wages in the country rise. And even if the factories move, Chinese businesses might actually be behind that. They could be moving their factories themselves. You know, So how does that look through your global trade lens?
1: I think the supply chain story is really interesting, uh, and there are a lot of different Nuances with that. So, first, I'll talk about climate change, just because I think it's a bit more of a simple issue. Then we can dive into the trade angle. I think with climate change, people tend to overlook this, but China has actually been relatively aggressive in terms of its green policy goals. There are still a ton of issues around pollution and industrial emissions and things like poor water quality in in China. But policymakers are aware of this, they understand that it, it impacts some very real quality of life issues. And this in turn could have ramifications for social stability. And from an industrial angle as well, they see the future in green and clean tech. And they want to make sure that China is well positioned to take advantage of that. And So we're seeing a ton of plans around what China calls industrial upgrading in terms of driving investment into this area, which might be an area of opportunity for a lot of foreign and domestic businesses. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that China does look at climate change and the green economy. In a very serious manner. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities there. So that might be one of the reasons why people don't feel that that's as high a risk. But to go to supply chains, I think this is is very interesting because when we talk to people, we really get a very wide range of answers depending on where they sit in the company, as well as what industries they might be in, or even what nationality they might be. Let's start with industries. Jason, you mentioned that we've already seen a little bit of companies moving out of China as costs have risen, um, and that ties into the supply chain story. And that is indeed the story that we've seen over the past 10 to 15 years. From our research, this has primarily been concentrated in low-end manufacturing. So things like textiles, as well as maybe some more basic electronics, where we've really seen the footprints of those companies expand primarily in South and Southeast Asia. This has been, again, something that really is being driven by cost considerations in China. Labor costs in mainland China have been rising for the past decade, for example, and in some industries are just not as competitive as the wages you might find in, say, Cambodia or Vietnam or the Philippines. And so that migration has been pretty natural from an economic perspective. I think when we talk about supply chain diversification nowadays, the two big issues that kind of cast a shadow over that discussion are the trade war with the US as well as the coronavirus. So the trade war. And the coronavirus both really exposed the risks of over reliance on a single market, and that market being China. I think at the height of the trade war, a lot of companies were willing to kind of wait and see because it did seem like, you know, if the US and China were going to come to an agreement, there might be some space to de escalate. And then maybe, you know, if these costs are elevated for a couple of years and the ultimate agreements, might allow for you know a reduction in the medium term and that could allow companies to re- recuperate their profits and the same thing kind of goes for covid nineteen this is inherently a short term health crisis, and so once China and other countries have been able to establish control over the pandemic and those supply chain disruptions are going to be smoothened out, I think what we're looking at, however, is those assumptions on both angles really do seem to be underestimating the degree of risk that comes primarily from a policy perspective. The trade war in particular, we see as a very long-term story between the U.S. and China, particularly because it involves things like strategic dominance in the technology sector, where a lot of this supply chain pain is really playing out. And so I think any assumption that this disruption is temporary really needs to be looked at in terms of things like risk exposure, as well as compliance exposure to, say, regulations in the U.S., That prevents US companies from selling certain products to to Chinese firms. That's a big story we're seeing, again, in the technology industry right now. Now, as part of this, we are expecting supply chains to undergo some shifts. And this is something that we're calling nearshoring. So it'll be things like companies who have operations in China, but then enhancing adjacent operations in, say, Vietnam or Malaysia or Thailand in order to account for any supply chain disruptions that might occur, whether that's stem from the trade war or, say, a second wave of COVID-19. We're already starting to see this happen in terms of some of the investment data. It's not been a rush for the exits in, in any sense of the word, but it has brought some investment to some of these markets. And that's a story that we did start seeing from, from in the middle of last year. It could also involve bringing supply chains closer to your home markets. So if you're an American company, you might build up some of your supply chains in Mexico, because labor and input costs in Mexico are much cheaper than they are in the US. And by having that diversified supply chain, you might be able to account for any risks that could hit your operations, say in China, for example. But I do want to draw this emphasis between nearshoring and reshoring. Reshoring is this idea of bringing back, say, manufacturing to home markets. So if you're a US company You're bringing back your manufacturing capabilities back into the U.S. And that's been a really strong policy goal of, say, the Trump administration for the past three and a half years. And we're starting to see this now emerge as an increasingly vocalized policy call across a ton of other markets, primarily owing to COVID-19 and primarily in sensitive sectors such as healthcare and pharmaceuticals. This kind of acknowledgement that over-reliance on China might have some pretty severe national security implications. I think is underscoring a lot of this. All of that being said, we don't expect this reshoring to be too attractive. Companies are still being driven by profits and costs. A lot of where these policy calls are coming from are markets where companies have already left because of high costs. And uh, we don't expect that economic situation to reverse anytime soon. And when we talk about China, that's primarily because the Chinese market is still just way too attractive. There's still a lot of opportunity, particularly in consumer-facing sectors that are incentivizing people to stay and then increase their presence in the Chinese market. And so we aren't expecting any type of corporate exodus out of China, even if companies start to build up supply chains in adjacent markets. We do think this is going to be a bit more of a medium to long-term story. That might be one of the reasons why it didn't feature too heavily in uh, your survey results, because it might be something that's still under discussion. But we do expect this to be somewhat of an established part of the trade framework, primarily because there are a ton of risks on the horizon. I mentioned U.S.-China trade frictions. We are seeing increasing bifurcation in supply chains, particularly in technology. That's going to add a lot of pressure on trade links. And then all of these policy calls in home markets, whether that's from politicians or just the general public, that is going to put a lot of pressure on companies as they think rethink
0: their regional strategies. The questions that we 've been discussing so far were all asked of executives on a twelve month time scale you know what what, it, what are the highest things to predict in a year 's time, but we also asked people to look further out on a, a three year timeline and that really shook up the answers a lot actually It rearranged what people 's worries were and uh, natural disasters or pandemic concerns sank down to about sixth place and then talent concerns shot up from. number four to the number one spot. So this is the thing that really worries executives is that they have the most trouble predicting is what is their workforce even going to look like in three years? So what's going on there? Is that some of that reshoring stuff that we talked about? You know, what is the workforce in China that would leave executives, you know, scratching their heads like this?
1: So I mentioned before in terms of the consumer markets, but I personally think that really demographics are the key issue here. And again, it is both from the supply side and the demand side. So the supply side, it's the reduction in the working age population, questions around whether you'll have enough people to staff your factories, for example. And then in turn, things like rising costs, which I think is is really, really important for companies in terms of, you know, if you have a more shallow labor pool, you inevitably have to offer higher wages to keep people... Um, on the assembly lines. You know, a a perennial issue that we see in China is that around the Spring Festival, people go back to their hometowns and then they don't come back to their factories, uh, particularly on the coast. And it creates a bit of a talent crunch as factories need to drum up, essentially, new pools of employees. And that's because as some of the economic prospects are growing in China in these smaller cities, so they used to be centered on the coast, now they're increasingly inland, that's creating a bit of a talent competition between a lot of Chinese provinces. And again that doesn't even touch on the talent competition that we're seeing in some low-end factors between China and the region. So as I mentioned before, you know the income or excuse me the labor cost discrepancies between China and say you know, workers in Bangladesh or Cambodia. And so rising costs, I think is really going to be kind of the staple that's going to persist at least over the next few years in terms of one of the really big things. And that's really as I mentioned just from the supply side, also looking at kind of the nature of the survey, I think the reason why maybe you know, pandemic concerns were just relevant for you know, the 12-month timescale, I mean, pandemics are inherently a short-term event. So I mentioned before, companies might be planning on what the post-COVID-19 recovery period will look like. They might be banking on that. But I do think that there needs to be a degree of pessimism here, or at least an understanding of risk. The EIU's core forecast is we aren't expecting mass widely available vaccine for COVID-19 to really become available until end 2021. You know, there's there's also the, the separate issue of whether COVID-19 mutates and becomes somewhat of a seasonal illness and how destructive that might be. And so I think that even if pandemics and these kind of natural disasters are inherently a short-term risk, there is somewhat of a chance that this risk in
0: particular could be a bit more long-lasting than many of us might anticipate. So to wrap this up, you know, we've told you about what we found executives in China were most worried about in relation to their business planning. But maybe you can tell us a bit more about what has you as a China analyst the most stumped as you look forward, say out one year or, two or three years. You know, what are the things that you find hardest to answer about China's business or economic future?
1: Yeah. The first thing that I want to mention is to not underestimate China. The country and the market is actually a lot more resilient than people think. And I think about back in February and March when we were first starting to get a sense of the COVID 19 impact on China. A ton of forecasting houses, including us, slashed our forecasts, slashed our assumptions for the year to try and encapsulate the expected shock to the economy. But as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the recovery has actually been a lot quicker than many of us anticipated. And a lot of this is coming from some pretty strong policy support, but also the fact that there are elements of the Chinese economy that are just more structurally sound. I think a lot of people uh, give, give credit for. People are still very bullish on the market. We've talked about how attractive the consumer market still is. Your survey results dovetail with those assumptions. People do still seem to be in China for China, which is a refrain that I've been hearing for much of the past six years. But increasingly so over the past four months as uncertainties around COVID-19 build. But on that note, I think I do need to mention that a lot of this resilience could come from controversial policy. And this in particular could be somewhat disadvantageous to foreign investors. We keep coming back to this, this topic, but I really see technology as the one area of focus, particularly when it comes to a disconnect between opportunities facing MNCs, as well as opportunities facing domestic firms. We've seen a very strong push by Chinese policymakers to cultivate the domestic tech sector, including by engaging in import substitution from foreign products, or even pushing foreign companies out of technology supply chains on national security grounds. That has already led to diplomatic consequences. Uh, This is one of the main reasons that underpinned the US-China trade war, and it's one of the reasons why those frictions have much more obviously shifted into the technology realm over the past year or so. And so even if there are a ton of opportunities in the China market, it doesn't necessarily mean that the opportunities are going to be uniform across sector. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the opportunities are always going to persist. I don't mean to sound too pessimistic on that, but I think having a bit of a realistic perspective to the policy framework will at least allow companies to prepare and then
0: respond accordingly. Interesting. We're going to have to do a uh, separate podcast just on the technology question. I think that would be a a good one to dive into later. But I think that's our time for today. So thank you very much, Nick, for being with us and giving us that Mac review. I think it's quite helpful.
1: My pleasure. And uh, thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. Thank you, everyone. And thank you for listening. If you want to go straight to the source for our uncertainty report, as I said at the opening, you can go to our website perspectives.eiu.com or to the special landing page bit.ly/artofuncertainty. You'll be able to read more about the survey results and get more perspective from the experts we interviewed. On July seventeenth, Economist Events will host the first webinar of the Trade Insight Hour series. My colleague Chris Clegg, Asia Managing Editor and Global Editorial Lead for Trade and Globalization at the Economist Intelligence Unit, will be moderating the discussion entitled Trade Disrupted, Rethinking Supply Chains. You can register for that for free at tradedisrupted.economist.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast. Thank you again for listening to Asia Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit.